So I'm back with Taylor Swift, this time in Nashville. She still lives with her parents in this massive house in Hendersonville, Tennessee. It's a suburb that's about 20 minutes from the city. The house is surrounded by dogwood trees, and it's set on a lakefront overlooking a dock. Taylor's talking in her kitchen with her family there, and they're all about to have dinner. They discuss the defensive strategy at her brother's lacrosse game, and Taylor gets temporarily distracted by her cat's sneezes, which she counts loudly. Then she turns her attention to a batch of fondue that her mom has made on the stove. She dips in a piece of bread and pulls a long string of cheese out of the pot slowly, twisting it around the bread like a dozen times. Her mom asks if she's having fun doing it. I honestly am, says Taylor, and gives a big laugh. Next, she walks down the hallway to her childhood bedroom. It's a small room with a wrought iron four-poster bed right near a full-length wood-framed mirror. Any sign of her life as a superstar has been scrubbed from it. There's an itsy-bitsy closet of her clothes organized in neat rows. She seems somewhat obsessed with neatness. My producer is going to read this thing that Taylor said. I'll take a day and organize my closet. One time in high school, I took a whole weekend and I color-coordinated everything. White, gold, gray, black, the colors of the rainbow, red, orange, gold, yellow, dark green, light blue, purple. I had all the primary colors on one side. I just like everything to look neat, you know? Taylor rifles around a dresser, careful not to show its contents, which she thinks are too messy for guests, and pulls out a box of colored wax sticks, which she's used to seal a bunch of envelopes. She shows me a stack of them. I wrote out my Valentine's Day cards yesterday. It's not going to be a big shindig for me, I guess. I didn't have that one person, so I had to write 30. I get the sense that Taylor is dying to have that one person. But here she is, in her childhood bedroom, almost stifled by the remnants of girlhood. It's almost like a Sofia Coppola movie come to life. Everywhere I turn are fossils of feminine youth. Even though she's really too old for it, Girlhood is a time she'll become known for chronicling throughout her career, over and over. Now, Taylor goes on tour at this point for the vast majority of the year. Like, I'm talking 300 days a year. She lives the professional life of someone far older than her. But her real source of freedom is the same as any American teenager. It's her car. Taylor has a Lexus. And it's the same model driven by Regina George. You know, the queen bee in Mean Girls. Get in, loser. We're going shopping. In Taylor's Lexus, it seems like she feels as bold and free and rebellious as Regina George, if not as mean. What's more freeing than the feeling of being a teenager driving a car? But Taylor's fans are just growing and growing, and they're not only going to be teenage girls. They're going to be millennial and Gen X women who relate to the younger versions of themselves through her songs. 
It's girlhood, nostalgic girlhood. And just like Barbie and the 2023 trend of ribbons tied neatly in bows, Taylor helps women tap into that sense of girlhood. A time before responsibilities, before we were told that we could handle a job and marriage and children, if we just had the right skincare routine, when life could be as neat as a ribbon tied in a bow. From Sony Music Entertainment and Campside Media, this is Infamous. I'm Vanessa Gregoriadis. And I'm Natalie Robomet. This is episode two of our four-part series on Taylor Swift. So last episode, we heard all about Taylor as a young woman, when I spent all this time with her as a 19-year-old. Yeah, and can I just say it's amazing to me that you spent multiple hours in multiple cities oh with God. her. <laughs> I know. Faith Hill's it's house. so crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the Rolling Stone access. I mean, remember that movie, Almost Famous? It's about like a kid who <laughs> tromps around the world with a... A famous band, and yeah, that's the lifestyle. You'd never get that anymore. I guess celebrities don't need magazines like that in the way that they no, used there's, to. <laughs> I mean, they can control their own message, right? There's Instagram and TikTok, and it's a Stan's world these days. Exactly. And I think we're going to talk about that later. But what, <laughs> That's true. Luckily for me, I was at Forbes kind of covering the business of entertainment in sort of the years after your story. So I, that's right. I ended up keeping tabs on Taylor. Taylor, the CEO, for sure. Right. <laughs> yeah, which bumps up against Taylor, the artist. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And I think one thing we're going to talk about in this episode is how she sort of weathers both public and private conflicts to kind of become a symbol of vengeance and girlhood and, and the tension between right. those two. I mean, it's this perfectly crafted image, but what is so amazing to me is that lots of people perfectly craft their image. Right. But so many people are mesmerized by the way that Taylor has combined that girlhood and CEO in this perfect souffle. All right, so you take it from here. So I'll start with what we all know is key to Taylor, the way she was shunned in middle school, left out by her peers. Now, if this happened to you, and who hasn't it happened to, you know how scarring it can be. And for Taylor, whose skin back then was paper thin, it was apocalyptic. But writing songs was her weapon, her revenge. I could sit there in class and they could say whatever they wanted about me. And I didn't care because after school, I was going to go home and write a song about it. And for the first time I had that that feeling that they couldn't really hurt me anymore. There's something really interesting here about how even in middle school, Taylor alchemized feeling like a victim, feeling as though she had been wronged, into a song. Not that those middle school girls knew what they'd done. Taylor says that about a year later, she played a show in her hometown, and those same girls came to see her play. Not just that, they waited in line for hours to get her autograph, wearing her t-shirt. They were now her fans. I can't ever hold a grudge against someone like that. You start to realize, like, we were kids. Wow, we were kids and they don't remember it. But even if in this case, Taylor no longer held a grudge, her music would. Because she would continue to immortalize people, people who would hurt her, in her songs. Honesty is something that I've always loved about music. And when 
I had a favorite song when I was growing up. I would always wonder who it was written about. And it would break my heart if I thought that it wasn't written about somebody and that it was just a song that they felt like they should write. And some of those people were boyfriends. As one critic said, Taylor Swift is like our new Morrissey, the great bard of romantic turmoil, except with more eyeliner. Did you write a song for him on a new album or no? About him? This is Vanessa asking Taylor about Joe Jonas, one of the Jonas brothers with brown floppy hair who Taylor dated briefly. I wrote a song about it, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of what I do. It's kind of what I do, she says. In doing so, she takes a private conflict a private dynamic that she's experienced, perhaps one the other person has no idea about, and makes it public, makes money off of it. This is part of what is so interesting about her. Because Taylor, for all her innocence and girliness when Vanessa met her, was already incredibly powerful. Here she is, talking about the music video for Our Song, a single from her self-titled debut back when she was only 16. I was sitting in the bathroom, talking on the phone, like a complete gossip-obsessed teenager. Even though she was the same age as this gossip-obsessed teenager, Taylor Swift was already a CEO. And that tension between how much power she has, how aware she is of it, and how she wields it, could it come to haunt her career? This is Infamous from Campside Media. So even though Taylor Swift, CEO, already wielded power, most of the world still saw her as an innocent girl. But as the years started to tick by, she was growing up and having a lot of romantic relationships. Now, let's talk about love for a second, which is of course wonderful when it's really clicking, or when you're in the heat of the chase, or when you've settled down and are living a porch bench lifestyle with a romantic partner who is now your best friend. But before all that, or even in the middle of it, there's so much about love that is embarrassing, humiliating, just as cringy as seeing your middle school friends hanging out without you at the mall. I'm talking about the waiting for the text, the scrutinizing of the emojis in said text, the unrequited feelings that can make you question your very existence, the cheating at the end of a relationship, the lying, the gaslighting, the final breakup when you basically never talk to the person ever again. Some people you dated pretty seriously will probably not even attend your funeral when it happens. Breakups are the ultimate, you're dead to me. And many of Taylor Swift's breakups, they did not end well. Like what happened with John Mayer. Or Jake Gyllenhaal. I'm really gonna miss you picking fights and me falling for it, screaming that I'm right. And you would hide away and find your peace of mind with some indie record that's much cooler than mine. Or Harry Styles. I knew you were trouble when you walked in. Now, Taylor has never explicitly said that these songs are about those exes, but the Swifty sleuths have deduced that. This sort of kiss-and-tell courageousness, or shamelessness, about saying what she thought happened in a relationship, of course the guys may beg to differ, 
became part of Taylor's mythology, part of what fans loved. This, of course, has been happening forever in music, both by women and men. I mean, famously, Carly Simon's very clever and canny song about Warren Beatty. Now, you could say Taylor was also dropping info about her relationships into songs because she sort of needed to stay in the public eye all the time because that's what stars today have to do. And attaching herself to a famous man is a tidy way to do it. But then there was a time that she did not at all benefit from a famous man's attention. And it was one of the biggest turning points of her life. The 2009 MTV Video Music Awards. I always dreamed about what it would be like to maybe win one of these someday, but I never actually thought that would happen. Taylor Swift is standing on stage, wearing a silver glittery gown and dangly earrings, her hair pinned back in a prom-ready updo. She doesn't look cool or edgy or sexy. She looks like the epitome of inoffensive, palatable country femininity. And in fact, she's the first country artist to win a VMA. I sing country music, so thank you so much for giving me a chance to win a VMA award. She's clutching the Moon Man trophy with her right hand and holding the microphone in her left, when all of a sudden... Go Taylor! Kanye West bounds on stage and grabs the mic. I'm really happy for you. I'm going to let you finish. But Beyonce had one of the best videos of all time. Okay, the audience was booing, meaning they were against Kanye there. But still, Taylor, who'd been left out and made fun of in middle school, was now being made fun of in front of the world. Kanye was, at that point, the biggest artist in the world and like the most respected artist. This is Britney Spanos, a writer for Rolling Stone, who happens to teach a class on Taylor Swift at NYU's Clive Davis Institute. She's going to talk about Kanye for a minute. This is my favorite class to teach um, every semester. (laughs) It's so fascinating, um, generationally, what we have lost in terms of understanding Kanye West because Mm -hmm. to a 20-year-old, he is nothing but like a MAGA anti-Semitic loser. But to (laughs) someone who is a few years younger than Taylor, like Kanye was God. He -hmm. was just cool and he was smart and he was making great music. Even Taylor had said like College Dropout was the first album she had ever bought. His controversies at the time were that he was just speaking honestly. George Bush doesn't care about black people. George Bush did not care about black people. That was absolutely true. Um, You know, it's like stuff like that. It's like all of that was inherently him sticking up for people in his life, sticking up for for black people. Brittany says the context for what happened here is really important. At that time, Kanye, Kanye's mom had died a year prior. And of course, his mom was his best friend. Instead of grieving, he immediately went on the road. He had been working nonstop for a year straight. He was clearly not doing well. He got very drunk and thought he was defending his friend, Beyonce, in a very crass, very Kanye way. And of course, this came at the expense of a young girl who was really excited to win a VMA and um, was shocked that an artist that she loved so much and clearly, again, was the coolest artist of this time, the most respected artist at the time, was basically telling her she didn't deserve her award. The fallout was immediate. I always show the Jay Leno interview that happened a couple nights after where Jay, basically he has Kanye 
come on to apologize. And then Jay says, what would your mother think? What do you think she would have said about this? Um... Kanye starts crying. Okay. Would she be disappointed in this? Would she give you a lecture? Plus, Jay Leno embarrassing Kanye was the least of it. Even the president had something to say about it. The young lady seems like a perfectly nice person. She's getting her award. What's he doing? Why would he do that? He's a jackass. So now in this whole fiasco, Taylor is the victim. It's just like those bullies from middle school who made fun of her for singing the national anthem at a sports game, who went to Victoria's Secret without her, were real again. Or those guys who dissed her, who broke up with her in a nasty way. And they aren't just real, they're the coolest artist in the world. But the thing about Taylor is that it's not just that she's in touch with the painful parts of girlhood, what it feels like to be left out, or what it feels like to have a requited or unrequited crush. She's in touch with vengeance. And that's really helpful because the professional world is just like middle school, right? Taylor takes vengeance with a pen. She writes a song about Kanye's interruption called Innocent, which is actually pretty polite when you listen to it, but it is still a way of addressing the conflict and putting it back in the public eye. Who you are is not There's this old saying, success is the best revenge. And after the pretty magnanimous song about Kanye, her vengeance, direct or not, came in the form of album sales. Now, back in 2010, this was a really wild period for the music industry. Streaming hadn't yet arrived, but physical music sales were on the decline. People were buying albums on iTunes, remember that? There was a lot of uncertainty about what would come next and how artists would succeed in this new landscape. But not Taylor. Taylor Swift sold more than 20 million albums between 2006 and 2011. All that singing about broken relationships worked. She actually sold more albums in that period than any other musician, including Kanye. All of this was happening from her Nashville base. She'd moved out of her parents' house and into her own Lux condo, which was decorated with Alice in Wonderland-style furniture and the night sky etched on the ceiling and a giant gilded birdcage. She was signed to that small independent country label run by a former Universal exec, Scott Borchetta, called Big Machine. Here's Brittany again. She helps make the label what it is. It becomes a very powerful country label. It signs a lot of great artists onto there. Um, they're all country artists and they're all doing very well. And Taylor has, for three albums at that point, been still the like the breadwinner of this label. Those albums have cont continued to get bigger and bigger and continue to take over country, continue to cross over country into pop music. So from the very beginning, Taylor was always thinking about commercial appeal. Here's what she told Vanessa. Slogans and campaigns. I love thinking about stuff like that. It's yeah. almost like writing a song. You have to have a hook. You have to have the right build-up. You have to have the right structure. Yeah. And you have yeah. to get a point across in a certain amount of time. Very much like songs. I mean, no one would ever say that Taylor hasn't been very good at that sort of hooky writing. And she's right. It is sort of like advertising. And even though her country audience was huge... 
the pop market was even bigger. She's a huge pop fan. She like grew up listening to a lot of pop music. She wanted it to the extent that her voice changed at this point. She was definitely losing that Southern girl twang. This is your first album of all pop songs. Are you at all worried that you will lose some of the country fans? I am not worried about that. I'm really in touch with my fans and I know what they like. What my fans in general were afraid of was that I would make, start making pop music and I would stop writing smart lyrics or I would stop writing emotional lyrics. And when they heard the new music, they realized that that wasn't the case at all. Now, country fans have a reputation for being really loyal. They'll follow you. So by the time it comes to her fourth album, Red, she's ready to swing for the pop charts with them in tow. She starts working with Swedish hitmaker Max Martin. Max Martin is the person you want to go to to um, make that make a pop song. And having a couple of those songs on there, it's kind of clear that she wanted to explore it more, but knew that it was necessary to help ease into this new era without kind of doing a hard pivot. Um, you know, we start off with We Are Never Getting Back Together, which is the first single from the album, her first number one single ever. And then the rest of the album is, it's country, but it's also like a little bit like, you know, Heartland Rocky. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's a little like, a little U2-ish, a little Bruce Springsteen-ish, um, which is a perfect, again, bridge between pop, and con- between pop and country and also very reflective of the time. But she does still have to make some concessions to her Nashville home. She had to release a country version of We Were Never Getting Back Together and, you know, kind of have that to sort of appease Big Machine and, and Scott Borchetta. Um, mm-hmm. And like you mentioned, that there was some tension at the label of her exploring the side of her, even though the album is still majority guitar-driven, country-ish, country-pop-ish. Because here's the thing. Scott Borchetta is very much a country guy. He's got dark, curly hair, wears a lot of black, and at times he's even sported a handlebar mustache. He kind of looks like he could walk out of a John Wayne Western chomping on a cigar, just ready to tell you who's boss. And Taylor wanting to move into pop? That creates some tension with the boss. It was a big deal for her to just like slap like three explicitly pop songs on there that included Max Martin. I think that Red and the choices that she made with Red were definitely the beginning of of that relationship sort of not, I wouldn't say necessarily starting to fully break, but the cracks are starting to show. Now to be clear, these pop songs on Red were huge hits. Those singles were massive for her. They were the lead singles, all these Max Martin songs. They did huge numbers. The 22-year-old has realized that she maybe is correct. That sort of shifts a lot of their relationship. Country humility is a big thing. You have to Mm. be very down home and very inoffensive. Yeah. And Taylor was the good girl. She was the girl next door. She was the prodigy of this country era. Right. And for her to showcase a lot more business acumen during this time and show that she cared about her business, I think also rubbed people the wrong way. And I think mm-hmm. probably led to a lot of tensions behind the scenes. Taylor had already had a very public feud with Kanye West. But she was also entering a private feud with Scott, one that would eventually become public. 
This is Infamous from Campside Media. So in 2014, Taylor Swift makes a move. Not just a strategic one, a literal one from Nashville to New York. I have an apartment in Tribeca. Yeah? Yeah. Very nice. I'm really excited about yeah. it. Big, big place? Yeah, it's nice. It's good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really good. Yeah. It's kind of like one of those where you wake up and you're like, I, I live here, huh? Yeah. No, you're really a, a cheerleader for New York. Though. Yeah, anytime I talk to anyone or anytime I do an interview, it's just like, you don't understand. You have to go there now. You have to go to New York. Just drop what you're doing. You have to go there. It's amazing. It's the greatest place ever. Jettisoning the sundresses and cowboy boots, she gets a wardrobe like Carrie in Sex and the City and buys a $15 million apartment previously owned by the director of the Lord of the Rings movies. She's no longer in the city she lived in with her parents, the place she went to high school and got her start trotting up and down Music Row. She's now in New York City, Manhattan, the place so many young people come to party and find themselves. But the move is symbolic as well as physical. She's now further away from Scott Borchetta, her country label head, which is probably a relief because their private feud appears to be heating up. Taylor is working on 1989, which will be her first fully pop album. And the cracks Brittany mentioned earlier, they're showing. Those years between Red and 1989 specifically are a mix of here is someone coming into a creative renaissance in her life. She's in act two of her career of moving into the pop sphere and seeing that not only are people okay with that, and fine with that shift, but she's quite good at it. 1989 is a massive album. It's a great album. But according to Taylor, she had to fight extensively with Scott Borchetta over the pop direction. Now this private fight was bubbling over into the public sphere because Taylor was talking about it in interviews. Here's what she told Time. My label and management were the ones saying, are you sure? Are you positive? This is risky. And I was the one who had to come back every time and say, no, this is what we're doing. And GQ. I had so many intense conversations where my label really tried to step in. I could tell they'd all gotten together and decided, we got to talk some sense into her. She had an established, astronomically successful career in country music. To shake that up would be the biggest mistake she ever makes. And Rolling Stone. When she first turned in the record, she says the head of her label, Scott Borchetta, told her... This is extraordinary. It's the best album you've ever done. Can you just give me three country songs? Love you, mean it, is how Swift characterizes her response. But this is how it's going to be. For his part, Scott starts to fight back in the media, too. In a flattering Business Week profile, he takes credit for several of Taylor's recent business moves. Taylor recently made a big stink about pulling all her music from Spotify in protest over their royalties. Now Scott says he was the one who made that decision. But Taylor is really trying to spread her wings. She begins new friendships with a bunch of supermodels, like Carly Kloss and Gigi Hadid, various Victoria's Secret Angels, Cara Delevingne, people like that. They become known as her girl squad. Let's face it, Taylor has a huge squad. I'm so obsessed with my friends. There's Lena, Gigi, Lily, Carly, Selena, Kara, Mariska Hargitay, two cats, and more. I just heard that you're a member of Taylor Swift's girl posse. <laughs> Is it endless cupcake making? Uh, cupcakes? I mean, no. 
But Taylor, who'd once been shunned by middle schoolers, was now friends with some of the most beautiful and famous women in the world. She'd bring different members of the girl squad out on tour, introducing them all by saying, please welcome to the stage, which led to one of my favorite YouTube parodies by a comedian and fellow podcaster about Taylor Swift and how she was always trotting out some famous woman all the time. Please welcome to the stage my two best friends, Gigi Hadid and the Blair Witch. These two used to have bad blood, but not on my watch, because feminism is about friendship. Please welcome to the stage Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. But at the very same time as Taylor's hanging with her girl squad, she was enacting vengeance against another woman, Katy Perry. Okay, this whole feud is a little complicated, but it reportedly has to do with Katy Perry hiring dancers off of Taylor Swift's tour. That hasn't aged as well, those moments like Bad Blood. It was a bad look to not only write a song pretty pointedly against another major female pop star, but then also make a video that was all famous women, (laughs) girl ganging up on her. The whole thing just seemed like really poor judgment because Taylor Swift wasn't powerless. She was one of the biggest pop stars in the world. It sort of felt like the bullied had publicly become the bully. She's even aligning herself with the guy who bullied her once, Kanye West. Kanye and Kim have married. Of course, this is Yeezus era. Kanye is everyone's favorite villain. He's still the crass, douchey guy, but he's like, he's making some of the best music of his career at this point. And they are intersecting more than they ever have before. Taylor's friends with Beyonce. She's a pop star now. She's hanging out with Justin Timberlake. She's inviting them to her birthday party. She's hanging out with the people that Kanye knows, that Kanye's worked with, that he's friends with. They make such a big show of their friendship. They make such a big show of sending flowers to each other and celebrating each other's work and being excited for each other. We are at overload of Kim and Kanye and of Taylor Swift by early 2016 when Life of Pablo comes out. We're already probably pretty exhausted by them. These are like the most famous and most searched people in the world at this time. But the truce between Kanye and Taylor doesn't last long. Even though Taylor is looking more and more like a cheerleader and not a girl in the bleachers, the fact is that people do pick on her, that she does get the raw end of the stick quite often. Now I'm like this close to overexposure. This is a tape recording from a 2016 phone conversation between Kanye West and Taylor Swift, parts of which Kim Kardashian would soon make public. In it, Kanye seems to be asking Taylor's permission to use a specific line. I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex. In the video that Kim leaked, Kanye is only asking her permission for, I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex, to which Taylor is fine with. But that's not the line Taylor very publicly has a problem with. It's this one. I made that bitch famous. But Taylor does not hear the line, I made that bitch famous. She doesn't care about that. I feel like me and Taylor might still have sex line. She thinks it's funny. But I made that bitch famous is the thing that really pisses her off. Because she did not like that he was taking credit for her fame. She did not like that he was calling her a bitch. It just blows up in such a wild way. Taylor releases a statement saying she had never known about the made a bitch famous line. Kim Kardashian leaks a clip of Taylor's phone call with Kanye as apparent proof that Taylor's lying. And Kanye releases a totally bizarre video to his song. It's like he created a larger than life art piece where wax figures of about a dozen celebrities, including him, Rihanna, Taylor Swift, and Kim Kardashian, are depicted in a rather, let's say, unconventional sleepover. 
It's like a surreal Hollywood version of Toy Story, where the toys are A-list celebrities, and they've all decided nap time is at Kanye's. And they're naked, including Taylor. There's no backlash to this because there's just not a lot of love for Taylor at that moment beyond her most loyal fans. She's no longer perceived as an innocent girl like she had been at those 2009 VMAs. Now she seemed like a calculating capitalist, a melodramatic superstar who used feminism to her advantage, which meant that she was no longer the victim. Because Taylor's like sort of fatiguing everyone because they're tired of the squad it just becomes like a big point in, in yeah. pop culture that creates sort of a, a mini, mini downfall for Taylor. She had very naked ambition. You know, this was a part mm. of her that um, was precocious and then started to rub people the wrong way. Taylor disappears from public view. She flees the country. She goes abroad and according to her, doesn't leave a rental house for a year. Here's what she told Time about, well, that time. I was afraid to get on phone calls. I pushed away most people in my life because I didn't trust anyone anymore. I went down really, really hard. Remember the whole experience she had on CSI? The way she was the dead body? And he hears a voice behind him say, so what happened? And he turns around, it's me, dressed like this though, with, with brown hair, and the screen says, 365 days earlier. Figure out all the different things that happened that led to me not only having black hair and a lip ring, but ending up dead. She would be lying on the pavement for a little while, but eventually the tables would turn. Taylor was down, but not out. That's next time on Infamous. Oh, you got to remember any names. Well, I need people. I can't remember the count. It's just like this, like, um, Shakespearean level of just, you yeah. know, betrayal and feud. Swift released a re-recorded version of her Grammy-winning album Fearless back in April, and that has already been streamed three times as much as the original. 